Alright, Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Tibbin qulubi wa dawaiha. Wa afiyat al-abdani wa shifaiha. Wa nur al-abasari wa diyaiha. We are on chapter 2 of the blessed poem of the Burda of Imam al-Busiri radiallahu ta'ala anhu wa ardah May Allah be pleased with him And this um, poem as you know uh, starts with chapter 1 which is on love And then proceeds to chapter 2 which is on uh, in the translation of of the commentary that I'm largely pulling from called The Mainstay uh, by Ibn Ajiba. Chapter 2 is titled Warnings About the Caprices of the Ego. Warnings About the Caprices of the Ego. And as I mentioned in one of the previous sessions, uh, I think it's notable that the Imam uh, before getting into praising the Prophet and talking about his life and his miracles and the Quran and the night of ascension uh, before doing all of those things he talks about these two chapters so the first chapter is on love second chapter is on purification of the heart and uh, I think that there's a really important lesson in that the first section is helping us to understand the reality of love and the nature of love and to warm us up, so to speak, of getting into the idea of loving the Prophet And the second chapter really uh, then asks us to look inwards. And uh, for anyone who's sp- serious about their spirituality or their relationship with Allah, they recognize that without a very serious commitment to internal rectification it is difficult to have successful relationships with other people in a way that is healthy for all sides involved and uh, it is difficult to be able to be able to tell truth from falsehood and when we're dealing with love we have to be able to tell truth from falsehood what's a correct feeling what's an incorrect feeling <coughs> what's in the right place, what's not in the right place, what's gone too far, what hasn't gone too far enough. And our ability to understand ourselves and to look within ourselves impacts all of that. So I think it's extremely important that he mentions this in the beginning. Um, And this is something that, you know, when you think about it, is kind of central to how we understand the world and how we understand existence. And that's why... In a book about chemistry, I want to say by Ibn Hayyan, I might be wrong on the name, Kitab al-Sabi'in, uh, he begins his book on chemistry with an introductory chapter on purification of the soul. And that's because we think that our mind and our heart are very much related to our emotional well-being, our psychological well-being, our mental health, our intellectual even soundness are all connected to our spiritual purification and so uh, we can't really talk about this properly without putting that in its proper place so he begins a section uh, by saying وَلَا أَعَدَّتْ مِنَ الْفِعْلِ الْجَمِيلِ قِرَى ضَيْفٍ أَلَمَّ بِرَأْسِ غَيْرَ مُحْتَشِمِ So he says, رضي الله تعالى عنه Because of its ignorance, my ill-commanding ego has paid no heed to the warner of gray hair and approaching old age, nor has it prepared good deeds and welcome for an unannounced guest who has settled on my head. So before this, uh, we had the conversation around the the nasiha, the advice of 
one's own gray hairs. Oh, mashallah, the rain started coming down hard right now over here. May Allah give us all of the things that we need and hope for. May Allah purify us of our sins and our shortcomings. May Allah protect us and our families. May Allah protect those who are uh, struggling in the aid of others. And may He be with us in all of our affairs. Amin. And with that, the rain stopped. SubhanAllah. When it comes back, maybe we'll continue. <laughs> At least it sounds like it did. No, it didn't. It's just not as hard. Ya Rabbi Stajib. So here are the, the so how does how does he start then this section by saying that my nafs al amara is not taking advice. Oof, it's coming again. It's not taking advice. The nafs amara is not taking advice. And it really should take the advice. But it can't. And part of that is the nature of that nafs. Uh, so we're going to talk about that a little bit, uh, but in a second. He says in the commentary, the author's statement, because of its ignorance, is a notice that a sinful person's disobedience only stems from his ignorance. This is attested to in the words of the Most High, whosoever amongst you did evil out of ignorance and thereafter repented and made amends, that their doing evil is associated with their ignorance. But afterwards they realized that what they did was wrong. Interestingly, uh, Jahl, Jahl actually, as, uh, although in modern Arabic it's understood as ignorance, meaning the opposite of intelligence or knowledge, that's not 100% the original meaning of the word actually. Jahl, oftentimes its, it's opposite is not uh, ilm, its opposite is hilm, its opposite is forbearance. Because the person in Jahiliyyah, the person in the age of ignorance, was actually also a person who didn't have any forbearance. They would just act crazy. And they didn't have any character or like these noble traits and qualities. And so they were prone to jahl. They were prone to these ignorant uh, outbursts. Or uh, perhaps in like a, a modern usage, you would say that someone was acting ignorant. Someone was acting ignorant would be like someone who's acting with jahl. So, in any case, uh, if you contend, he says, but everyone knows that disobedience is unlawful and that it comes with the threat of punishment. So in what sense can a sinful person be described as ignorant? I respond, what is meant by ignorance here is ignorance brought on by the sin when it is committed and neglecting to bring to mind the sin's punishment at the time of its commission when passion and caprice cloud one's intellect. And this is in a number of other hadith, right? That the person who, when they commit zina, when they commit fornication, that the believer is not a believer at the time when they do that. Or that the believer is not a believer at the time when they drink alcohol. It's not to say that they become a non-Muslim, but it's to say that belief in everything that comes from it, uh, from calling us to good character and conduct and, and believing in God and being aware of His presence in our lives, all of that left them in that moment of, of ghafla, of heedlessness. And so, um, that is a kind of lack of knowledge or ignorance. In the commentary, he mentions here three different types of the soul, and nafs, three different types of nafs. Um, one of those is a nafs al-ammaratu bisu. That's the one that's mentioned in the verse. That is the soul that commands to that which is evil or incites to that which is evil. And this is mentioned in um, in Surah Yusuf alayhi salam when he said that I don't uh, claim to be like fully innocent of, of you know I, I, it's hard to translate in this context because we don't want to attribute something to Sayyidina Yusuf alayhi salam that's not actually his but the meaning of Amaratu bisu is that this nafs, this soul, uh, commands towards bad. So their their heart has reached a state that it no longer pushes the person towards good, but rather pushes the person towards not good or bad. Number two possibility for the nafs is a nafs al 
which is mentioned in Surah Al-Qiyamah, right? وَلَا أُقُسِمُ بِالنَّفْسِ And I swear by a nafs al-lawama, which is the self-reproaching soul. This is, it's lawama, means it's constantly blaming itself. And this is not meant to be understood in a negative way, but this is the nafs that is really active in its recognition of its shortcomings. So it looks at itself and says, oh, you made a mistake on that one. You didn't do right there. So rather than just making mistakes and rolling with it and keep going and making more and more and more and more mistakes, this is the nafs that it makes a mistake and it reproaches itself. And it says, oh, that was a mistake. You messed up on that one. You should seek forgiveness. You should apologize. You should do whatever you need to do. That's a nafs al-lawama. And then the third one that's mentioned in the Quran is a nafs al-mutma'inna, mentioned in Surah Al-Fajr. Uh, this is the nafs that is at peace It is at ease The soul that is at ease, at peace It's it's calm It does it does good And it's confident in its relationship With Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala It's confident in its relationship With Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala For good reason The person is always in remembrance Always in obedience And so they're, they're a soul that's at ease Nafs al-mutma'inna this is kind of like the most standard breakdown, three of them. Some other ulama have broken the nafs into seven categories. Um, these three as well as others. Like a nafs al-radiyah and a nafs al-mardiyah and a nafs al-kamila. Um, and one other one that I don't recall at the moment. But in any case, these three are the three that are really clearly mentioned in the Qur'an. And what he's kind of talking about here. That it's his it's his soul that calls towards evil that doesn't let him hear the advice of the gray hairs that have come on his head. Uh, and of course this is an expression. Again, working up onto this idea you know, the ideas that are being talked about. In the commentary he also mentions know that mankind has three foes. Has three foes. Uh, dunya, the, his world, dunya, his satanic consort, shaitan, and his own nafs. Uh uh uh. Smile. Thank you. Um. Sometimes I'll also add here, hawa. There's a nice acronym that was used by one of the scholars and saints of West Africa. I want to say it was Sheikh Ahmed Ubamba, but I'm not entirely sure uh, right now in this moment. But he used the acronym Neshhedu. 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 Nefs, Shaitan, Hawa, and Dunya. Noon, Sheen, Ha, Dal. Nafs, shaitan, hawa, and dunya. So, nafs is this soul, this base self, and shaitan is shaitan, Satan. Hawa is like uh, our desires, and dunya is dal. Anyways, he says these are the three in the commentary here dunya, shaitan, and nafs. And see to it, therefore, that you keep guard against the world by practicing non attachment. So, how do you. Uh, fight the attachment to the dunya to worldly things by practicing non-attachment or zuhd so accustoming the self to not be attached to worldly things how would you do that? there's a million ways you can do that you know a million ways you just have to start actively thinking about it so maybe I want the heat at a particular temperature but I don't put it that high if you do it out of cheapness, it's different. Or sometimes not cheapness, but just out of economics, that's fine. But it's not zuhd. Zuhd is to do it intentionally. You want to fin- you want to eat more food, but you eat a little bit less. You want to sleep a little bit more, but you get up a little bit earlier. There's a comfortable place to sit, and there's a less comfortable place to sit. So you sit on the one that's less comfortable. Um, you feel like it would be really nice to go out and get a coffee right now, and you decide that you're just not going to go and get one. These would be non-attachment, you know, things that I'm just intentionally 
letting go of these things. Not because they're haram per se, but because I don't want this materialist, materialisticness to overcome my heart. Because if it overcomes my heart, then I'm going to be affected by it and many other things. Uh, so this will be to practice non-attachment. And one should guard against shaitan by seeking refuge in Allah from him. A'udhu billahi minash shaitan rajim. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. La ilaha illallah. The remembrance of Allah. Min sharri waswasil khannas. Alladhi yuwaswisu fi sudurin nas. Shaitan is described as khannas. He's like a slinky. He comes in and he comes out, but he comes out when Allah is remembered. So we push away shaitan from our lives by being constant in the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the third one then is to guard against our own self by forsaking its passions. By forsaking its passions. So this is kind of related to what I said in the other one. Uh, maybe I didn't give the clearest of examples, but there is some level of overlap. Um, one of the wise has said, whoever is overcome by his ego will become a prisoner to its passions and locked up in the jail of its desires and it will prevent his heart from receiving benefit that's an amazing statement it's an amazing statement very scary um, the reason why this is very scary to me is not only for probably most of the people who are in attendance right now who are older but this is really scary for me especially as it relates to children and technology because we as adults have a hard enough time with this technology because it's designed to manipulate our nafs and to play upon our desires but for most of us at least the older amongst us we've gone through points in our lives where we didn't have that and we did have to go through some sort of like you know disciplining of the nafs to get wherever we are in life um, but for younger people who are growing up from an early age being manipulated like this you know following desires becomes a lifestyle following the and, and that's true before technology too following desires becomes a lifestyle and when it becomes a lifestyle it's very hard to break it's doable it just takes time and a lot of effort because a person who is overcome by his ego will become a prisoner to its passions and locked up in the jail of its desires and it will prevent his heart from receiving benefit. So then the heart is completely occupied by other things. Um, in, in, the, in the hikam, when we studied the hikam of Ibn anhu, he said that uh, basically like how do you go to Allah when your soul is completely overwhelmed with its desires. Um, it's locked up, it's chained up actually. Amin, 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 Amin. When something mukabbalun bi shahawati. Oh, there it is. No. Mm. Anyways, the point is the point. I can't find it right now. But the um, point is how do you go to Allah when your heart has been enchained by its desires? It's all wrapped up and enchained by its desires. So, how do you go to Allah? There's no way to go to Allah. How do you travel? Your actually your desires have chained you back, and so we have to be careful of this. Our our desires, our passions, and this infiltrates every area of our life. By the way, it infiltrates our marriages, our relationships, our relationships with our children. It affects our jobs and our employment, our community work. Everything is affected by this. So uh, we have to be aware of it. And this is one of the beautiful things about the works of spirituality. The works of spirituality are universally accessible and universally applicable to every single Muslim. There's no like, uh, yeah, usually we have this person maybe um, is known for worship and this person is known for knowledge and whatever it might be. But none of that, they don't produce and they don't create any sort of exception when it comes to these things. 
when it comes to these things, everyone is suffering from the same challenges. And everyone is struggling with the same challenges. So we have to be uh, concerned about this. Uh, the remedy for this Uh, the remedy for this disease is repentance and purification of the self from filth. This is why the Prophet ﷺ would often say, O oh Allah, grant my soul its God-fearingness and purify it, for you are the best to purify it. You are its master and guarantor. Uh, Allahumma ati nafsi taqwaha wa zakiha anta khayru man zakaha Usually hear it in the plural in Ramadan. That you are, give our nafs its taqwa and purify it. You are the best to purify it. You are its master and guarantor. Um, so we, we turn to Allah and we ask this. Oh Allah, forgive us of our sins. Oh Allah, purify our hearts. Oh Allah. Allah is the one who does these things. Allah is the source. Allah is the source. We will never accomplish anything in trying to rectify ourselves if we think that we are the ones solely who are going to rectify ourselves. We do our part of the equation and it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is the wali of the whole thing. He is the uh, master of the whole affair. Um... There's a verse on this, but I can't think of it right now. Anyways, the Prophet ﷺ said about gray hair, Whoever has his hair turned gray in Islam, it shall be a light for him on the day of resurrection. When the Prophet Ibrahim ﷺ first saw gray hair on his beard, he said, O Lord, what is this? And Allah said, It is dignity. MashaAllah, that's beautiful. Ibrahim ﷺ saw, he said, Allah, what is this? He said, This is dignity. Uh, we should know that as we get older, you know, it's more and more incumbent upon us to turn back to Allah. It's more and more incumbent upon us to turn back to Allah. Heedlessness about Allah is ugly in a 20-year-old, but it's really ugly in a 60-year-old, or in a 70-year-old, or in an 80-year-old, or someone who's nearing the end of their life, and it's like, okay, you don't know when you're going to end, but I mean, like, by all, you know, broader statistics, they're going towards the end of their life and there's still no recognition of turning back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and yet we should know that turning back to Allah is always right next to us it's always right there and we don't have to go any sort of distance we don't have to uh, jump over any hurdles we just have to turn back to Allah it is related that a young man from the children of Israel had worshipped Allah devoutly for 20 years and then spent 20 years disobeying him, flinging himself headlong into sin and vain passions. Then one day he looked at himself in the mirror and saw gray hairs on his beard. This disturbed him and caused him to pity himself. Then he said, O oh God, I have obeyed you for 20 years and disobeyed you for 20 years. If I return to you, will you accept me? Just then a caller called out. By the way, the word for this in classical Arabic, some of you might find it interesting, Arabic speakers, the word for this, like when a, when they say that they heard a voice, basically, a caller called out, they heard a voice, is a hatif. Is a hatif. In, in modern Arabic, that's the word that's used for a telephone. In the classical usage, it was like someone heard a voice. So it says, a caller called out whose voice he could hear, but whose form he could not see. The voice said, you loved us, so we loved you. And you left us, so we left you. And you disobeyed us. And then we granted you respite. So if you return to us, we will accept you. And then he ends this section with, O oh Allah, turn us with your tenderness and care, O oh most merciful of those who show mercy. Allahumma ameen. Uh, and Busiri continues, he says, لَوْ كُنْتُ أَعْلَمُ أَنِّي مَا أُوَقِّرُهُ كَتَمْتُ سِرًّا بَدَى لِي مِنْهُ بِنْكَتَمِي He said, had I realized I would not have honored it, 
I would have used black ketum dye to hide what it showed. If I knew that this, this reminder of gray hair, the reminder of gray hair, if I knew that I was going to ignore it, then I would have hid it so that it wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be falling into that. I'm going to read the following paragraph. The reason why I wanted to read this, I think, is so interesting is because it shows an example of reflective reading. Okay, so someone who's a really reflective reader, which you'll see in, in what I'm about to read in the commentary, they'll read this one verse, and rather than hearing one verse, they'll hear a whole paragraph. Okay, so look, look what he says. It's fascinating. He says, In this couplet, the author, may Allah be pleased with him, admits his neglect and remissness and expresses regret over the good deeds that passed him by and his failure to honor the rights owed to his gray hairs and his failure to prepare for death with beautiful actions and righteous works and to renounce upon their, on, upon their arrival his wayward ways of youth. Essentially, he is saying, I thought that my gray hairs would garner respect and I thought that with their arrival I would find myself repentant and that their appearance would deter me from the lowly pleasures of my ill-commanding self. So with their arrival, I held out hope that I would become righteous, since gray hair is a mark of the righteous and a, and a raiment of the penitent. But when the legions of gray hairs spread across my head and took to the pulpit of exhortation, my ego continued in its enjoyment of forbidden pleasures and persisted in its vain desires to which it was accustomed. And the gray hairs were unable to pry my ego away from its bad habits and passions. Had I the chance to go back and change things, and had I known from my ego what I know now, and had I realized beforehand that it would not change its ways after the appearance of gray hairs, I would have felt shame before Allah and before people, and I would have hastened to dye my gray hairs and do my best to conceal them so as to avoid, uh, to, so as to avoid humiliation. I would have concealed them with dye and hidden them with ketem. I thought things would be different, but alas, they are not. My resolve has weakened, and my success is only by Allah. So this is really cool. You know. He heard that, that line, and this is where he went with the line. It's as if the author is saying all of this. Right? That's that's a very kind of like deep and reflective method of, of, of reading this. And uh, of course, to be people of reflection is, is important. Um To be people of uh, attentiveness is important, but I think this this paragraph is really uh, amazing. Mashallah. Um, as we said before, the scholars they'll oftentimes be well. I shouldn't say that. The scholars will be well versed in multiple disciplines of Islamic studies, and so any commentary will inevitably seem together various things, right? So here he's talking about dying gray hairs. So the commentator, he goes into a little thing here on the issue of dyeing hair. And is it permissible or is it not? And what kind of dye should be used? And what did the Salaf say? And who said what? And there's a hadith in Bukhari. Um, and But so-and-so understood it this way and so-and-so understood it that way. And uh, he said most of the Salaf would dye their hair with a yellow dye. And some of them allowed a black dye. So some of them didn't like black dye because they felt that it's kind of like a deception. That a person can make it look like they're younger than they are without any indication that that's not actually reality. And there's actually many rulings that relate to uh, appearance that are connected to the issue of um, deception. That one should, the way that one should present themselves should be how they actually look tie that into like modern makeup and all this kind of stuff don't ask me i'm just saying it's an interesting concept you'll notice across multiple different positions uh, in the fiqh that relates to the idea of not having deception in terms of how we present ourselves and how we look so they'll apply it to like makeup to eyebrows to eye coloring to hair hair dye a lot of different things but anyways said so some some of the ulama and some of the salaf they were they used yellow dye some of them used uh, allowed black, even though many of them did not. Um, 
Here's the interesting part after all the opinions, he says. Some scholars opined that when it comes to either using or not using dye, two factors should be considered. So with all of these different possibilities and interpretation and the different madhabs that took their different positions, said two factors are what should be considered. One, the first factor, one must consider is the customs of his land. If it is the custom of a people to dye their hair or not to, then for him to go against local custom is tantamount to seeking notoriety, which is also not liked. <laughs> yes, I know this is a problem for our social media existence. Uh, it's, it makes if, if they dye their hair where it's not the custom to dye their hair, then they will be adorning themselves in an adornment of shuhra, which was looked down upon negatively in the sunnah of the Prophet It's negatively looked upon to adorn oneself in a way that causes them to stand out as apart from everyone else. So they're doing something that nobody else does. The second factor one must consider is how different people look with gray hair. For how many a gray head would look handsomer if it were dyed? And then there are some who look unsightly with gray hair, and for such people it is better to use. So, like basically saying, some people look better if they dye the hair, some people look better if they don't dye the hair, so they have to think about like which one is which one's going to work better for them. In any case, you see, like again, this idea of the various different angles uh, that the commentator will go into as they're going through the poem. But the main thing here is that the verse is saying what? The verse is, the author is expressing regret for their inability to take heed even though the gray hair is in their head. Next line. مَنْ لِي بِرَدِّ جِمَاحٍ مِنْ غَوَايَتِهَا كَمَا تُرَدُّ جِمَاحٌ خَيْلِ بِاللُّجُمِ so now he's going to start getting into these issues of spirituality and purification of the nafs. Who will help me restrain my bolting ego from its willfulness as a rebellious horse may be restrained with reins? So now this analogy is being made between the nafs and a wild horse. The nafs and a wild horse. And this is one that you see commonly in uh, Islamic poetry, this idea of a horse that's wild and the horse has to be trained. And when the horse is trained, then it comes under the control of its master and it becomes tamed at some level. But it's, if, if it's not trained, then it will be wild. And so the author is saying, so who's the, who's the one that's going to help me to restrain my ego? As a horse would need to be restrained by its reins. As a horse would need to be restrained by its reins. He says in the commentary, It is therefore necessary to struggle against the lower self and forcibly prevent it from its bad habits. Just as a horse is restrained after bolting. When a horse bolts and goes outside its boundaries, it will only be brought back after great effort and fatigue. Likewise with the lower self. When it bolts from its owner, it is harder to bring back than a bolting horse since a horse can be persuaded to return with ruses and guile and kind words. But there is no stratagem to bring back a bolting ego. It can only be brought back by lordly providence, Jud Rabbani, and divine grace, Tawfiq Ilahi. This is a strong statement. So he's saying though that the, the first principle here is that the nafs must be restrained. The nafs must be restrained. This is absolutely essential to everything without exaggeration to everything in the teachings of Islam we cannot do all of the other stuff if our nafs is just completely out of control like a horse that's running wild the nafs must be restrained and so he's asking who who is it that can help me to do this this is such a uh, a difficult task right um who will help me restrain it? And how can I ever hope of turning it back when I am the most feeble and incapable of all, unless it be returned by him in whose hand is the kingdom of the heavens and the earth? Okay. Uh, he, he needs someone to help him. Of course, we need Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But sometimes there can also be uh, people that will help us with that. Um, you know, may we find them and may we know them and may we benefit from them. Allahumma ameen. 
The next line he says, فَلَا تَرُمْ بِالْمَعَاصِي كَسْرَ شَهْوَتِهَا إِنَّ الطَّعَامَ يُقَوِّ شَهْوَةَ النَّهِمِ So this is an interesting one. He says, do not thwart unlawful desires by satisfying them. For food only increases a glutton's desires. For food only increases a glutton's desires. So what is the issue here? The issue is the person is uh, feels a leaning towards something. They feel a desire towards something, a calling towards something. And that is something that they shouldn't be doing. It's haram. They shouldn't be doing it. It's not allowed for them to do it, but they feel enticed towards it. One of the things that the person will sometimes tell themselves is, well, I'll just take a little bit and then my desire will be quenched and after that it won't be a problem anymore. And uh, what he's saying is, you know, when someone uh, someone's addicted to food, eating some food doesn't help them. Like, satisfying their hunger doesn't make them no longer interested in food. Uh, so what he's trying to say is, like, don't think that this is a good method. This is not a good method. Giving in to the desires in order to break them is not a good, not a good method. He says, that is because the lower self, once it has enjoyed its sinful pleasure, which it craved, experiences it firsthand, and thus develops a taste for its sweetness. That experience stirs, stirs its desire and intensifies its covetousness, causing it to become like a glutton, who, when he tastes a delicious meal, grows ever hungrier and more desirous of food. So don't do that. However, when the door to sin is shut in its face, and its hands are struck, and firm resolve is summoned to overpower it and prevent it, it will relinquish its desire and lose hope, and no longer hanker after sin or grow accustomed to what it once coveted. So what is what is the right approach? The right approach is to deny it. So no. Oh, you think that you're going to trick me into giving you a little bit? You're not going to get nothing. You're getting nothing. And I know someone who, uh, mashallah, this individual... Uh, it's it's not me. I'll tell you that much. This individual, when they pray Aisha, if it's nighttime, you know, it's they're tired from their whole day, everything else, and they do their Aisha prayer, and they know that they should pray Sunnah after Aisha. And if they feel like, you know, uh, they get lazy about uh, about doing the Sunnah, then they attribute it to Shaitan, and out of spite for Shaitan, they pray extra. So I'd be like, oh, you think you're going to get me to not pray the two rakah? I'm not, not only am I going to pray two rakah, I'm going to pray two more on top of that. <laughs> so they're in like a very conscious battle with shaitan and with the nefs. Like, no, you're not going to win. I'm going to win. I'm going to overcome you. You're not going to overcome me. And sometimes we have to have the spirit, you know, like especially when it comes to that which is good. Uh, no, you're not going to win. Uh, the, the, the the bad voice or not necessarily bad voice but the, the voice that's not pushing us to do what's best you're not going to win I'm going to let the other one win and then they, they go into a fight like that then he continues he says when uh, this is a very famous line from the Buddha and it's one that uh, subhanAllah I remember from I feel like I, I think I mentioned that in, in at least when I was in high school at Al Azhar. For those who are not aware of it, I went I told the kids at school this recently, I told them, you know, I went to high school twice and I went to college twice. And they were like, Why did you fail the first time? I said, No, I didn't, I didn't fail the first time. I went to college this I mean I went to high school the second time after graduating from college. <laughs> I went to high school, graduated college, then went to high school again. Um, in the in the high school in Azhar, you, at least in that time for adab for Islamic literature, one of the poems that we studied was Nahjal Burda Nahjal Burda by uh, Ahmed Shauqi. Um, basically, on the path of the Burda. So he wrote his own kind of like Burda esque piece, and somehow in the commentary or something when we were studying that, this line came up. 
And uh, so this line kind of like stuck with me from then. The ego is like a child. Neglect it and it will grow up loving to suckle. But if you wean it, it will be weaned. So I was saying the, the, the child, the, the baby, if you leave the baby, the baby will nurse forever. But eventually the baby must be weaned. And if you wean it, it will be weaned. So he gives this uh, uh, analogy. Um, he says here the author says that the self is like a child. What makes the two alike is that both are feeble of mind. Both prefer their desires over all else. Both are overcome by their passions. And neither of them is responsible with money. A young child is receptive to everything and therefore does not know the difference between what is good and what is evil and does not discriminate between benefits and harms. That is likewise the nature of the ill-commanding self that, that overpowers the intellect. It prefers desires and passions and does not consider the outcome of its actions or look after its best interest. Its ambition is limited to the enjoyment of its desires or the passions of sin that assail it for which it shows no concern. The lower self thus becomes like a child who is without sound mind. The lower self, yeah, is like the nafs ammara. It's like the nafs ammara, yeah. Oftentimes, like, the thing with nafs is, oftentimes we're using the word nafs in a negative context. But the nafs can actually be purified. No, it's not like an automatic. That's why we have a nafs al nafs al amara to be su, nafs al lawama, nafs al mutmainna, or nafs al radi, or al mardiya, or al kamila. These are all good souls, or good self, right? But in, oftentimes, so sometimes in the translation and stuff, they'll say the lower self to indicate that we're talking about here a nafs that is inclined towards that which is not good. Uh, whereas the goal actually is for the nafs to become inclined to that which is good. As the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, uh, That one of you will not truly believe until their desires become aligned with what I brought. Until their desires become aligned with what I brought, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says. So, you know, this is the nafs then that is like a child. And the child must be raised. The child must be raised. The, the, the role of the parent is to raise the child, is to help the child grow, to give the child guidance, to set limits for the child, to sh help it to understand what is good and what is bad in a way that completes it, uh, completes the child in a way that fulfills the child and does not break the child, while at the same time, you know, disciplining and helping them grow. And so this is this is what the person must do to their nafs as well. Their nafs must be trained. And this is why also like it, these things are not they don't happen overnight. And nothing that requires training can happen overnight. It has to happen over time with patience and perseverance and effort and commitment and so on. And there will be many mistakes along the way. And again when you think about the analogy to parenting it becomes very clear. Right, anyone's and like certain children will have certain inclinations. Some of them will be good, some of them will be bad. They'll have certain talents, they'll have certain shortcomings, and in any in any way you look at it, they will need to be raised and they will need to be aided and conditioned. And the nefs is the same. The nefs has capacities, it has limitations, it has positive qualities that it inclines to, it has negative qualities that it may incline to, and each one of them will have a different palate. You know, again, just like the child, and so the nefs has to be nurtured and taken care of in that way. This is why it is important that a child be forbidden from keeping company with immoral people or bad peers. Indeed, human natures steal from one another and character traits are acquired. So it is incredibly hard to turn a child around later if at the very beginning he is neglected and left to freely indulge in his lower desires, prefer the comfort of his lower self over all else, keep company with immoral people and bad peers, and is not restrained from his corrupt wants. I mean, if things aren't taken from the beginning, it's very hard to fix them later on.
It's not impossible, but it's harder. Uh, and he uses the expression here, which is very popular in Arabic. But interestingly enough, I don't think I can remember it properly. Something along the lines of or something like that. Like the nature steals from other people's nature. So if we're around people who are generous, our 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 soul will steal from the generosity of the, the other person's soul. If we're around people who are patient, our soul will steal from the patience of the other person's soul. Not in a way that makes them lose it, but in a way that obviously we benefit from that. But if we're around people who are impatient, if we're around people who are bad, if we're around people who, or people who do bad things, then the nafs will take those. The nafs will take those as well. The poet said, Keep company with the best of people and know that he who associates with the noble will one day be noble. Do you not see the honor received by the once paltry hide after they used it to bind the written pages of the Qur'an? So stay close to that which is noble and you will become noble. And then the poet says, Don't you see like the animal leather, the animal skin? The, the skin of the animal? Nobody really thought anything about it. But when it was dried and it was kept and then it was used to write the Qur'an on, it became the greatest of things. So it kept good company and in keeping good company, it itself became noble. He says, it is the same with the lower self if you overpower it and curb its desires when it is in the throes of youth and in the heat of passion. You will take control over it, master it and preside over it. But if you neglect it and follow its desires and allow it to enjoy its passion, it will take control over you and exercise its authority over you as it sees fit. It will become the ruler and you will become the ruled. And you will go along with its wants and spend your possessions in its service. When your lower self takes control over you, Satan gains the upper hand and fulfills his promise as he said, quote, By your honor, I will surely beguile them entirely. End quote. Quran 38, 82. That is because Satan and the lower self are brothers. Their path is one and their aim is one. Both of them encourage vain passions and embellish the unlawful and detestable. Both of them showcase the ugly in garments of beauty. So this is a, a, a strong statement. The sages have said the noblest of people is the one who disobeys his unlawful desires and refuses to hand over the reins to his lower self. They refuse, you know, like they say, take the take take the bur- t- um, uh, take the bull by the horns, take the bull by the horns. So they say the 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 um, the noble person refuses to turn the reins over to the self. They say, no, I'm going to control you again. You know this idea that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna control you. You're not gonna control me. We have to engage in this fight, and that's why it is stated in the hikam of Ibn Atta'ala. <coughs> As I mentioned, Ibn Ajiba, who's the commentator here, also has one of the most famous commentaries on the hikam. It's not the one we studied, but it's a very famous one, much more detailed than the one we studied. When two matters seem confusing to you, this is from the hikam. When two matters seem confusing to you, consider which one is heavier on the lower self. For nothing weighs heavily, heavily on the lower self except that it is true. If two issues are, are you have a choice between the two, see which one you're less inclined to. The one you're less inclined to is the one you should do because that's the one your nefs is trying to resist it. And it's actually probably what you need to do. So look to that. Okay, 7.55 We'll do one more line, inshallah, and then we'll stop فَصْرِفْ هَوَاهَ وَحَاذِرْ أَن تُوَلِّيَهُ إِنَّ الْهَوَى مَا تَوَلَّى يُصْمِي أَوْ يَصِيمِي Divert its vain desires and beware of giving it power Again, we're talking about the nafs still here The base self Divert its vain desires and beware of giving it power, for vain desires pollute or destroy whatever they control. Okay. Here the author, may Allah have mercy upon him, advises his interlocutor by saying, Divert the vain desires of your lower self. Again, he's, he's going to break this one sentence into a whole paragraph. 
Divert the vain desires of your lower self and prevent them from reaching your heart. Do not help it attain its pleasures, and do not consent to its aims. If you fail to heed my command, then beware, lest your lower self turns against you and rules over you as it wishes, in which case you will have ceded authority to it and allowed it rule over you, making you the servant of your lower self and not the servant of your Lord. It is stated in the Hikam, Never do you love something without you being a slave to it. But he does not want you to become a slave to any other besides him. Capital H's. And the Prophet ﷺ said, May he perish, the slave of the dinar and the dirham, and the slave of fine clothing. Let him perish and relapse, and if he is pricked by a thorn, let him not find anyone to remove it for him. So basically the Prophet ﷺ here is speaking negatively about the one who is a slave of money rather than the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so this is now don't follow those desires don't follow those things if you let them what if you let if you follow them they're going to pollute things and this is one of the tricky issues here and this is also one of the wisdoms of what he said before that if you feel inclined towards something that's bad don't think that if i give myself a little taste of it that will take care of it so actually what happens when you give yourself a little bit of a taste of it, then you want it more. And also what happens when we take a little bit of a taste of it is that it pollutes us. It pollutes us. And so this is why shaitan works in steps. Don't follow the footsteps of shaitan. So one step, one step, one step. All of a sudden, one step, one step, one step, you're now in something that you would have never imagined to be in. But you got there step by step by step by step by step. Where the individual got there step by step by step by step. And each step along the way that the desires were followed, they polluted and destroyed whatever it was that they controlled. So now every time the person gives in to a little bit of that desire, that act of giving in to it uh, pollutes their perception of, of what's right and what's wrong and their analysis. And so then they become step by step closer to doing things that are really, really bad. Whereas in the beginning, maybe it was something that wasn't that big of a deal. But five steps down the road, now all of a sudden it's something that's really big. May Allah protect us. One of the Salaf said, Shaitan has several traps that he sets for man. If he finds someone suffering from weak faith, he will remove his faith altogether and destroy him. And if he finds someone with strong faith whom he is unable to ensnare or trap, he will content him with doing actions that are offensive, makru, make vain passions beloved to him, and urge him to commit lewd acts in private that degrade his moral standing. <coughs> that's, I'm going to read that again because I think that's very important. And to understand what are the tricks that shaitan can use. Shaitan has several traps that he sets for man. If he finds someone suffering from weak faith, he will remove his faith altogether and destroy him. And if he finds someone with strong faith whom he is unable to ensnare or trap, he will content him with doing actions that are offensive, makru, make vain passions beloved to him, and urge him to commit lewd acts in private that degrade his moral standing. Subhanallah. The hikmah, the wisdom of these people, they, they really understood. They understood the self and shaitan and the interplay between them and the soul, like deep, deep uh, understandings of these things. So we'll we'll uh, we'll resume from here next time, inshallah. There's still, I think this is like maybe a little bit less than halfway through this section. Maybe even no, this is less than halfway through. Khair. but we'll continue with wara'iha wa hiya fil a'mali sa'imatun wa in hiya stahlat al mar'a fala tusimi. Guard it as it grazes in the field of actions, and should it find the grazing sweet, do not let it roam. So, inshallah, we'll um, continue from there next time. If there's any questions or comments that anyone would like to share, Ahna wa sahna. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for that. That was a really good dars, mashallah. Um, so you said something interesting, which I forget exactly what you said, but it's something along the lines of if your ego is out of control, then only God can bring it back. Mm. Or something like that. Mm, yeah, he said that in the commentary, yeah. 
So uh, I'm in the field of addiction, and there, obviously the very famous program is 12-step program. So you, you probably heard of the first step, which is we admitted we were powerless, and then the second step is higher power could relieve us of our insanity, and third is giving our will and love. So is that actually Islamic steps right there? Yeah, I guess you could say that. Uh, can you say them again? So the first one is we admitted we are powerless over addictive behavior. That our lives have become unmanageable. Two, can't believe that the power higher than ourselves can restore us to sanity. And three, turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand God. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, Subhanallah. And what's interesting about that is that this is not like at the level of this is not the nafs al-lawama. Right? This is not at the level of the nafs where the person is still kind of struggling with themselves and they can go back and forth. Now this is the level of addiction. Where they really have no control over themselves, right? And they're doing this uh, turnover. Hmm. Fascinating. Interesting connection. What do you think? It's hard to say because, like, I read uh, Sheikh Hamza has an article. Sheikh Hamza. I, I shouldn't use names, but Sheikh Hamza. It's um, fine. Well, there's two. There's there's a lot. I'm sorry, I'm going to get too technical. But essentially, Sheikh Hamza is one of the people I listen to a lot, and he says that like. It's an exercise of will. Like you just have to exercise larger willpower than the behavior itself. Whereas a lot of other scholars that are addiction specialists that will say it's a disease, right? And twelve steps said it was like a disease of the heart. Mm. It was like a well, it's like a disease of the heart, so it needs a spiritual solution. Mm. So obviously, you can reconcile the two in some ways. Yeah. But I just want to know, like, because I know in our tradition we have a high emphasis on the nafs. That we really emphasize like striving against the ego and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But that, that's why that statement was kind of surprising because, um, you know, I mean, it really depends who you ask, I guess. But I guess like, is the more is the more dominant opinion in Tesawaf that it's an act of God that saves you, or are you striving against yourself? Um, I think it's kind of related to the doctrine of Kesp, in a sense. This is kind of strange, but you know the the doctrine of Kesp in uh, in in theology that we have the ability to act, and when we we basically acquire our deeds by trying to do something, and then we act, and when we do that, Allah creates the act. So, you know, I think even. Uh, there's some other stuff here that I didn't read. Let me see if it provides some. Uh, so, be, and then the part that you were referencing, uh, he says, it, uh, but there is no stratagem to bring back a bolting ego. It can only be brought back by lordly providence, Jude Rabbani, and divine grace, Tawfiq Ilahi. But then he says, below that, um, it is as if he is saying, though the reign of acquisition, Kesb, is in my hands, I have been overcome by my bolting ego that has gone with the winds of pre-eternal decree and destiny. Who will help me restrain it, and how can I ever hope of returning it back when I am the most feeble and incapable of all, unless it be returned by him in whose hand is the kingdom of the heavens and the earth? So that's that's interesting. That's interesting. It seems It seems that there's some sort of Maybe, like you said, there's a way to reconcile it, but it seems like here, it's almost like when a person is at that level, they're not free from responsibility. Obviously, they're going to put in their effort and stuff, but at the same time, they're recognizing, my effort's not sufficient. I need Allah, and I have to turn yeah. it over to Him as I'm doing it. Yeah, when I work, I'll, just, I'll end on this because I want other people to get to answer questions too. But like, you know, when I work with my clients, like that, that's a question gets brought up a lot. So, you know, they know I'm Muslim. Most of them aren't Muslim, but like I give them Islamic um, approaches to these things. So yeah, maybe uh, maybe uh, we talk about it later or something or yeah, in more detail. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the, the mystery between like tying your camel. And having faith in God, you know? Exactly. Yeah. It's in the it's in that same I feel like that's the that's the way I'm feeling and reading this and, and hearing what you're saying and kind of just thinking about it. It feels like it's a similar it's a similar it's 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 that secret spot, like right, right in between, you know. Yeah. I mean, 
Thank you. Amin. Barakalafik. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Faisal, I think you're trying to share something, but you're muted. Yeah, assalamu alaikum. I yeah, so. I, it's interesting. Uh, um, one of my, I was trying to share one of my friends today. I was talking to Shia, who is uh, severely addicted to cigarettes. Mm. And, uh, and uh, interesting to hear this. But um, the thing is that I think I think maybe you or maybe share um, um, some another shape mentioned that when they were small they didn't want to touch certain things that if they crossed that threshold there was no return so sometimes you know like the cigarette addiction once you cross that you actually it alters your your genetics I believe because there's like 400 uh, types of 400 types of ingredients that's gone into it and the, the companies will never disclose what it is in and that kind of so even if you had this strong willpower to come out of it it's 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 something like you're going against the you know the grain like you know so i thought i'll share that with you yeah yeah that's interesting yeah addiction is a really interesting topic um yeah i think it was probably me that had uh, that had that had mentioned like certain uh let's just say um, substances that there were certain substances that I felt compelled to not really go near because I didn't want to do anything that might have permanent consequences kind of similar to tattoos like I was never I was never into tattoos um, because it's like I'm gonna put something on me that I can't take off that doesn't <laughs> I'm not sure I want to do that <laughs> you know um, Dr. Mitra, she said, uh, I think addiction may start with spiritual and emotional diseases, but the brain, once it gets addicted, it can turn into a physical disease. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if, if anyone doesn't know Dr. Mitra, she's a PsyD MFT. So speaking from a position of expertise there. Um, yeah, I, I think that interplay is interesting. It, it seems to me that uh, some of the conversations I've had with people around depression is kind of similar. Like depression can start off lighter and more, so to speak, more spiritual and emotional. And as it gets deeper and deeper, it can actually become like biological. And, and then how it's treated and how it gets dealt with is different. That's, that's what I've seen and read. I don't know if that's a correct understanding. Maybe... Uh, Mitra, I don't know if we have any other. Fatima is here as well. Um, you know, professionals in these fields. If that's not accurate, please do say something. Yeah, um, I think... So, when the Trusted Program came out in the 1930s with Bill Wilson, it was a very Christian-based. It was based off the Oxford group, which was like this evangelical movement to kind of help people with major sins kind of thing, kind of like the, the Ligi Duma. And he kind of appropriated so it could be used for a larger audience. And they understood it as a spiritual thing. They wouldn't really think of it as the brains. They didn't have the technology to understand that. But like as time has gone on, a lot of people that support the 12 steps that have become PhDs and stuff like that say, yeah, it's really a disease. It's not just like, you know, some spiritual stuff. Like this is like literally... And there's both called like your brain on the stuff you watch on the internet and uh, other things that have shown that the brain literally is morphed by addiction in some crazy ways. And there's some chemical things and balances and stuff. So it literally is a, a physical illness as well. Yeah. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. And, that's, and so it's like, you know, and like they still don't have really good ways to deal with it besides the 12 step. Like there's other kind of programs, but like, Nothing's the. I always remember reading in school um, that like the number one program that still helps with these things is still twelve step, which is a spiritual solution. So it's just kind of interesting. Yeah, that's amazing. Subhanallah. Assalamu alaikum. I just wanted to add that um, the interesting thing about addiction. I remember when um, I've, I was going over some research presented. They were saying that you know uh, now they're using this idea that. Um, certain populations are more susceptible to become addicts so they're using it 
in middle school and high school before kids go off to college to say, hey, the same populations can smoke weed or the same population, you know, different populations can drink alcohol, but everybody doesn't become an alcoholic. So mm -hmm. they actually include the whole family, um, you know, life cycle and they do diagrams to kind of see if addiction runs in your family. And it doesn't have to be substance abuse. If the behavior of addiction if you can see it in an uncle and a grandparent, then most likely you might have that trait or that gene that if you were to have one cup of alcohol or a cigarette, you automatically become addicted. So they're trying to use that to educate youth and say, look, a lot of kids go through college, everybody drinks, but everybody doesn't become an alcoholic. And why? Why is that? And of course, there's environmental, social, spiritual factors, but, um, but once you know, you know, once they looked at this research, they're like, there is something different. You know, the same amount of alcohol doesn't affect, um, you know, a Caucasian person the way it affects a Korean person or the way it affects an African-American. So there is some genetic factors, but absolutely that it starts with environmental, family, social, spiritual, but then it turns into, like Chef Jamal said, and I agree with his analysis of even things like depression, that, you know, it may start with you know, just some things, and then it can, it you know, it, it ruminates while you keep repeating those thoughts, and the environment doesn't change, the situation doesn't change, the circumstance, then it becomes a very difficult, you know, um, mm -hmm. chemical imbalance that then you need to medically intervene for. So I do mm -hmm. agree with that analysis. Mm -hmm. SubhanAllah. Allah help us. Thank you for that, Dr. Mitra. Allah help us protect us and our loved ones. And uh, help us, and help us to help the people. SubhanAllah, there's uh, so much pain, so much that needs to be worked through. So may Allah make us sources for good, and may Allah help us to uh, overcome those things within ourselves that we need to overcome. InshaAllah. Uh, Some space for that one second. Okay, so also so um, Aaron here. So if anyone knows someone or knows someone that's struggling with these things, I actually uh, coach and stuff. So if you want to like private message me or something, or I can uh, put some of my links or something if anyone's interested. Uh, I didn't plan on. <laughs> well, I had no intention to do this tonight, but since it came up, might as well because uh, yeah, I would like to help the Muslim community with this particularly. So. Yeah, nice treat Jamal. Absolutely. Gave me the space. To, Absolutely. Uh, do that. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, it's important. I remember, like, uh, there's this case that I just vaguely was thinking about right now of a brother that I knew, and they had a friend. You know, he's like a guy who grew up in the Muslim community and whatever, and they had a friend who was addicted to heroin. And again, in the community. And they were just like, this was years ago. They were really having a hard time figuring out what to do and like finding resources to help him and it was a mess so these things are definitely real and um you know definitely want to uh provide support uh, for those who are in need of it inshallah Khair. all right barakallah fikum inshallah we'll continue next sunday with this class and with the other class on tuesday all are always welcome Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik Nashadu wa la ilaha illa Nastawfiruka wa natubu ilayk There you go Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik Nashadu wa la ilaha illa Nastawfiruka wa natubu ilayk Wa al-asr inna al-insana lafi khusr Illa al-lazina amanu wa amilu al-salihat Wa tawasum bil-haqi wa tawasum al-sabr And barakallah fikum If you need